HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Fine Diners Over 40, a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And my guest today is a classically trained organist, an original <laughs> punk, with both a library degree and several decades of high-caliber high archi- archivist work under his belt. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Who is he and what does he do? His name is Marvin Taylor, and he is the director of the Fales Library and Special Collections at New York University. Amongst other eclectic archives, Taylor has been instrumental in building one of the top culinary collections in the nation. As well as, as I said, he has has several other collections, and notably the downtown New York collection, which documents the art scenes of Soho and the East Village from the early 70s to the present. He's the editor of the downtown book, The Art Scene, The New York Art Scene, 74 to 84, and 101 Classic Cookbooks, 501 Classic Recipes, published by Rizzoli in 2012. Martin holds a BA in literature from, and an MLS from Indiana University and a master's degree in English literature from NYU. Welcome, Marvin. Great. Thank you, Linda. That's quite a varied background to be in, in back in the stacks. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but tell me, how... How did this all come about? How did you get interested, with all these other varied interests that you have, how did you get into being a librarian and an archivist? Um, sort of by accident, actually. Um, I like to say that my grandmother, who I grew up with, had literary pretensions. She wrote for ladies' magazines. And so I learned to read and write before I went to kindergarten. 
Wow. She, she was bedridden. She also taught me to cook starting when I was four years old. I would push a chair up to the stove and one up to the sink. And <laughs> I would, you know, she was in a wheelchair at that point, so I would give her the potatoes. She'd pair them. And I, my distinct memory is making onion soup, potato and onion soup with wow. her. Oh, that's so fantastic. still, whenever I put, you know, onions into butter, I have this memory of my grandmother. And um, we grew up, I grew up next to an antique shop. And so whenever my mother wanted to get away from me, she would trottle me off to the antique shop uh, where the, the proprietor would you know, babysit for me. So I grew up both loving old things and having a certain sense of a literary background and also cooking. Hmm. So, and my other grandparents had a farm. So we were on the farm at the weekends. So it all sort of in a funny way makes sense. Uh, because I could read from an early age, when I went to grade school, there was that old reading system that you had. They were all color-coded, and you would sort of they started out with red, and you ended up with beige and taupe and things <laughs> like that. What group are you in today? Yeah, right? you know, right? <laughs> and since I could do all that, I just asked, can I go to the library? Uh, because that I spent a lot of time in libraries as a kid, and I would help shell books, and this is in like the third and fourth grade. Hmm. And so every time I wanted to get away from something, I ended up going to the library. Like, you know, junior high and high school, I, last thing I wanted to do was sit in study hall. So I went to the library, and wow. it came time eventually, uh, after I realized I wasn't going to be a church organist, uh, and I had uh, worked in libraries as an undergraduate. I thought, you know, perhaps since I'm pretty good at this, I should see about getting a library degree. And at that point, I had taken a job at the Lilly Library, which is Indiana's rare book and manuscript mm -hmm. collection. And so um, I was being apprenticed as a, a bookman, as we used to call them, and studying very traditional rare book work. Um, and I finished my library degree, stayed on for a couple of years, ended up at Columbia, uh, and then eventually at NYU, um, where the collection was, <clears throat> it, people didn't even know NYU had a rare book collection. It was kind of forgotten and had, had been for many years, but I was brought in and told uh, to fix it, but they didn't know exactly what it was. They just knew that they needed uh, special collections that would support the changes that had, take, had taken place in NYU in the previous 10 years. And that was really area studies. American studies, performance studies, food studies, gender studies. Uh, and our collections were basically English-American fiction. But we needed something different. And so I started the downtown collection to support those areas. And then I guess 15 years ago or so, Marian Nessel came to me and said that she'd been having difficulty getting the collections fooded up. Uh, the people were resistant. And Mary Nessel, who's been a, a frequent visitor to Heritage Radio Network, for those of you who are not familiar with her, she um, she basically started the food studies program at NYU. And New York University is located in downtown Manhattan. So that all makes sense. Absolutely. And, and there are even specific... Uh, reasons why the food collection makes sense downtown because James Beard, Cecily Brownstone, Craig Claiborne, all of this sort of first wave of really important food people in America lived in the village. Yeah. And well, you mentioned Cecily Brownstone, so that so you were given this this free reign, or I don't know about free reign, but you were an edict, let's say, to build up the you know the food study, the food culinary, the collection in the, in the archives. How did this all come about? Well, Marion came to me and said that she had heard of a collection that she thought would be a good foundation for building a, a very important food studies collection. And it was Cecily Brownstone's library. Cecily was um, quite elderly at this point, though still very active. We met with her. She, had, she was incredibly sharp. We think she was 
97, at least that's what she said she was, but people... And give us a little background on Cecily Brownstone for those who aren't familiar. Sure. So Cecily was the AP syndicated food writer for 39 years, and uh, she wrote recipes that were syndicated every week, and so they had to be correct. Um, Her library uh, was basically her personal reference library and research library, because there weren't research libraries of cookbooks. There were a handful of places, mostly home economics schools, that had built cookbook collections. But Cecily's was, she relied on it every day to do her work. Uh, She was very close to Beard. Uh, They were very, very good friends. And through that, she met everyone else as well in that period. So Clementine Paddleford and um, Irma Rombauer. And we we have a wonderful photo in her papers of Beard, Rombauer, uh, Paddleford, and uh, a couple of other people (coughs) having martinis uh, at a dinner (laughs) in her back porch in the village on Jane Street. And so, but uh, so Cecily was really um, very critical of cookbooks. And in fact, we have the first uh, volume of Mastering the Art of French Cooking that Julia Child sent to Cecily. And it's it's got this lavish inscription. Clearly, Julia, who's a nobody, basically, at that point, is trying to curry Cecily's favor because if Cecily says something nice about the book, that means an awful lot. Yeah. She has a huge audience. and But Cecily, being Cecily, has gone through with her little pencil and, and checked every little moment, every possible thing that she could check. Onions, what kind, white or, ye- white or yellow? And it, and it's just typical of how she was. She was meticulous. It was done to her, right? Well, precisely. And she knew that it that it had to be. So we were able to get that collection, and it really then started the avalanche of building this food studies collection, which is now about 65,000 volumes. It's the wow. largest collection in yeah. the country. It is. So it is the largest. I said yeah. one of the top, but it is the largest It collection. is the largest. Yeah. And it happened in sh- record time to build a collection of that size yeah. and mostly through donations. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've, you've acquired through donations and through purchases, but you've acquired a couple of very large, other large um, collections, right? The Gourmet Collection? Yes, the Gourmet Collection was... When Condé Nast decided that they were going to close Gourmet, um, they said that they they either had to sell the library, the Gourmet uh, Cookbook Library, or they were throwing it away. But they weren't going to donate it. And so Roseanne Gold stepped up and uh, gave us the funds to purchase the collection from them and to save uh, the Gourmet Library. And it was about... Seven to eight thousand volumes. Yeah. Uh, it had been carefully curated during Ruth Reichel's time there, uh, and in the true sense of curated, that you know things had been cared for, other things had been removed, and um, so it was a very tight collection. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ladies Home Journal gave us their archive. The Beard House, the Beard Foundation, gave us their um, their archive and their library, and the largest collection was. Um, uh, oh. Dahlia. Dahlia, Dahlia is incredible. Yeah. Dahlia Carmel has given us 11,000 cookbooks yeah, and counting. A fellow culinary historian. Amazing, huh? amazing. One of the most brilliant collectors of cookbooks that I've ever known. But just the way she approaches things, uh, all kinds of religious diaspora. And, and, totally and, a, and large international collections. Very well. large. Yeah. And uh, because the earlier collections that we had were largely English language, Dahlia's collection really pushed us into an international collection, hmm. which having been a person, I really love that, that, you know, it's not just English language, although I think a lot of students don't have those language skills. Increasingly, I see people who do, because I should say that this collection is not only used by food studies people, but food is being taught across the university. And I think this is pretty true of most institutions at this point. It, it amazes me how it went from nothing 
1996, Julia Child and Jacques Pepin started a food studies program at BU, right? And mm-hmm. from from there, it's it's everywhere. There's it's everywhere. food studies. There are food studies programs, as you said, just in about just about every university. A Amazing. couple. A couple of years ago, the American Historical Association said that there were more dissertations in history that year about food than any other topic, hmm. which is really astonishing because yeah. history tends to lag behind uh, disciplines in these trends of, of new scholarship. So I think that's really, really fascinating. To, but we can really look at anything through the lens of food. Right. And I mean, in anthropology, what do you know about people if you don't study the food? Right. You know, eating habits. Uh, so much. Economies and, well, we won't, right. don't get me yeah, started. Right. <laughs> well, we have two cuneiform tablets at the library. That's that's terrific. Yeah. And they date from about 2250 BC. Yale and has, now Yale has a large, they have, they a, have large, a large collection. And right. uh, Columbia has a large collection. Yeah. We Ours are just exemplary to show students early writing. They're both about food. Yeah. They're both temple records. One of them says that um, somebody gave six goats to the temple. <laughs> or I take it back, it's six sheep, which is actually important because somebody was really wealthy if they could give six sheep. And, and it is amazing because if you haven't um, had the opportunity to see one of these tablets, I mean, they are tiny. They're very like tiny. Like three by three by three or three by two. or something. And the amount of information packed, inscribed on these ancient tablets is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's I mean, really, really incredible. Um, recipes. I mean, yeah, a- recipes. Yeah. So we've been building uh, the earlier parts of the collection um, as well. We recently acquired a, a 1494 edition of Plotinus, De Honesta Voluptate, uh, which is the second edition. The first was 1463. So it's interesting that so in such a short time after the development of printing for movable type, food texts were being uh, produced and distributed. And the, the Plotinus is known as a history of Italian uh, foods right. uh, going back into antiquity. And um, this is an especially beautiful copy. It was printed in Venice. And we did, we have about 40 incunabular books printed before 1501. But we didn't have any Venetian printing. And uh, so this was nice in that we got an early cookbook in the Venetian dialect wow. uh, that... Um, is also and about food. As far as printers go, Venetians were considered, they were considered, you know, like the ultimate in as in printers. They were very, very, yeah, they were yeah. doing incredibly beautiful printing very early on. Um, of course, the Gutenberg has a, its own <laughs> incredibly beautiful aura. Right. But the Italian books, especially by the time they reached the Renaissance printing, sort of another 20 years later, they are some of the most beautiful books ever produced. And then you recently acquired the collection um, from... Uh, George and Jennifer Lang yes. of Cafe des Artistes. Right? right. The Lang collection was over 25,000 volumes. Wow. And George had built it over the course of his life. And it includes a lot of early books as well, but, you know, it, it's just it, comprehensive, as comprehensive as he could make it. Right. Um, how, how do you not reconcile, because there's nothing to have to reconcile, but in this, you know, age of... of uh, Google research, you know, everything's online and you press a button. Um, what what to you is, is the major importance for these old texts that you were just talking about? Well, they aren't all online and probably never will be all online. We just got uh, William Roy Weaver's uh, collection of six thousand over 6,000 oh, food ephemeral objects. He's been on my show, too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, which is probably the largest collection of American food ephemera objects uh-huh. that's ever been put together. It also does have uh, international scope. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very different thing to look at the completely decontextualized image on a screen 
and actually to hand the, handle the physical object. And there's a certain embodied practice that we have with the physical objects that can never be replicated. Um, I like to say, you know, you don't learn to cook reading a cookbook. Um, you, learn, you learn to cook standing next to someone who teaches you the, the, the things that the body has to learn to cook that, that aren't written down. I like to sort of think about the same with the digital. Yeah, you can, you know, you can um, read the digitized versions, but it's not the same as having the experience of handling right. the book. I was so. talking to a, um, a host earlier when we were talking about technology and cookbooks, and I... And I said, well, it's for as a researcher and historian, it's fabulous to be able to go online and I just, I just need an answer and I don't have the time or the money to travel to five different libraries, you know, seeking this and to punch in, you know, a, a phrase or a word and get that information. But it's, it always amazes me when you see the actual old text to see, first of all, like, I thought it was this big book, and you find out it's this little, tiny, almost pamphlet-sized mm-hmm. thing, or the converse, you know, that it's, you know, this huge thing that, you know, you, you need two hands to turn to open up. Right. I mean, that's something I think that, that you don't, obviously, you don't get that from reading right. online. That's one of the problems. Even if they, you know, they put a color chart and they put the measurements, yeah. it's just, it's misleading to people of what they're really like. And you know, research is messy. It's very off, very seldom can you go out and find exactly the answer you want. Mm. Um, it's especially true with bi- the bibliography of cookbooks, because when we worked on the 101 classic cookbooks, I spent an incredible amount of time trying to make sure that all of the bibliographic details were correct, because I suspected that that book would become something that people in the book trade would use as a, as a, a reference text, which it has. And of mm-hmm. course, the prices of those books have now gone up mm-hmm. because we gave them a certain kind of accreditation. <laughs> but uh, when I, it was really nightmarish. I mean, the same book will be printed four different times with four different titles. It's given four different ISBN numbers, you know, the numbers that books are given um, to you know, sort of say how they're going out into the trade. But it's essentially the same text. And so it's, it's a tricky bibliography to work with, and since nobody has really done it in the past, um, I found that it was a bit of a challenge in working on that book. I wanted to talk about that book because that, um, it, you know, some a lot of people I think maybe don't know about it, but a lot of people do know about it. it was you published this in 2012, um, 101 classic cookbooks, and you used a lot of people in the food world to help call these few how did you narrow it down to only 101 <laughs> well it, so the 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 book originated because Rizzoli has a hundred a, a series of 101 great oh, yeah, right. whatevers and uh, there was an editor there who's very interested in food and cookbooks and so he asked Florence Fabricant from the Times if she would work on this and she said I don't have time go talk to NYU and so they came to us and to Marion and Clark Wolf uh, and me and we thought this is a great way of looking at our collection. Plus, for me, it was a great way of looking at very, in an in-depth way, at the history of American cooking in the past hundred years. Um, just to learn, I, I mean, I was pretty good with 1960 forward, but the <laughs> the earlier period, I there were a lot of gaps. I didn't really understand what was going on. So um, we agreed that um, Clark would handle the, the recipe research, and so we got graduate students from the food studies program to see what were the most reviewed recipes and the most printed recipes 
uh, from the from cookbooks. Huh. Um, what I did was I, he and I put together a list of about ninety cookbooks that we thought were important, uh, ones that we have on our shelves, uh, and then we sent that out to a, a large list of people, about thirty people uh, who are involved in the food world, and we said yes, no, maybe, and what did we miss? And they responded. We did this all over email. Right. Um, right. Using so the there digital. was technology Absolutely. involved, right? <laughs> and um, they got back to me. We, by the time we had expanded the list, it was about 140 titles because there was a lot of agreement mm-hmm. on what things needed to be there. Well, one thing I should say is these aren't great cookbooks. We no. took that out. Well, I'm going to ask you what was included and why, yeah. but we have to take a little break. Sure. Um, and then, so I want to think about that. You know, I want you to think about it. I'm thinking about it. Like, what? So how did they make the final cut? So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Come for the food, stay for the friends. Fine Diners Over 40 is a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Fine Diners Over 40 appreciate food as art, as cultural adventure, as scientific experiment, and best of all, food as an opportunity to take pleasure in the company of others. Join them for culinary and social adventures in New York and Seattle. Food may be the main attraction at Fine Diners Over 40 events, but it is the friendly and interesting members who carry the day. Join them for an evening of fine dining, fun, and stimulating conversation. While enjoying innovative tasting menus by first-rate chefs, you'll talk movies, theater, pets, sports, travel, and more. Epicurus said it best. We should look for someone to eat and drink with before looking for something to eat and drink. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Marvin Taylor, who is the director of Fales Library and Special Collections. And Marvin, we're talking about the book that you and Clark Wolf and many others um, wrote called, well, not many others, you, you edited, um, um, 101 Classic Cookbooks. And you were, so you were about to say that, okay, you had a, you called from a list of many, 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 140 it came down to. Before we even talk about what made the final cut, I want to ask you, what were your parameters? What did you consider to be a classic cookbook or what makes a cookbook a classic sure um there were a few things that went into those that decision making one thing is Rizzoli wanted us to do 101 great cookbooks and we weren't willing to do that because there are some books that are really important but we don't think are that great um so we said classic because they're still used they're still very much beloved and we thought that was an important distinction to make um we've spent a lot of time thinking about what makes a classic cookbook, what makes a good cookbook. And, a, um, and we've asked a lot of people on the critical topics and food series that we do at the library, three events a year, uh, what that is. And I think everybody on the panel and on the committee for the book agreed that first, the recipes have to be good and they have to work. Uh, 
and this is maybe this is because I'm coming out of the Cecily Brownstone approach to all of this. <laughs> the recipe has to work, and we know that there are a lot of cookbooks out there that are celebrity cookbooks. That you know, there was a recipe I was trying to make for a wild boar ragu, and instead of calling for a teaspoon or half teaspoon of uh, red pepper flakes, it called for a tablespoon. Yeah. And I looked at it and went, <laughs> who edited this book? I know what's going to happen here. So so we were skeptical of those kinds of cookbooks. That We really wanted things where we knew that the recipes were great. And then there were two other aspects, I think, that, we, that came through in the list that we ended up producing. And other people might come up with a very different list. But one was that the research that went into the cookbook had to be very, very solid. And a lot of the cookbooks, especially things about Mexican cooking or about Italian cooking, um, it, there was almost a, an anthropological approach to the research that was done. And there was a preference for those kinds of cookbooks that explained the food and the culture. Uh, and, and then, as uh, Judith Jones said when asked what makes a great cookbook, she said, it's the narrative voice. It's the voice of the cookbook writer, the ones we go back to again and again. You hear their voices when you. They, I think it's one of the reasons why Master or why uh, the joy of cooking became so popular is because her, Irma Rombauer's voice is so wonderful in that you hear right. her in your head, and you get that from from mastering the art of French cooking too, or even you know Beard's American Cookery. There's this really strong voice in them, and it may be where we cross over into the literary, and uh, that there's something about that desire for a strong narrator. Who's there and with you Judith in the kitchen? Jones, bless her soul. She was the, she was a a, um, a real proponent of headnotes and keep the headnotes in the cookbook. So often you open some of these new cookbooks and it, they they they're just recipes and they they don't tell you anything about it. You're like, well, okay, why would I make this and mm -hmm. what is it supposed to look like and what is it supposed to taste like? And mm -hmm. so you're right that she that was true the narrative voice. So. What makes a classic? That that's one of them. You know, where yep. you can hear the voice and that, and and something that you know people. Re well, it, did it matter? Like that something that how many were sold or how much people rely on it? How many times they go back to it for the same thing? I mean, how you know exactly how many times we went back to it and does it still have relevance? Mm -hmm. uh, even though it may be wildly out of date. Uh, and we learned a few interesting things, or I, I learned a few interesting things. Americans love giant compendia of recipes. Uh, they want it all in one place, which the um, the Joy of Cooking was not the first cookbook to do that. There was the Buckeye cookbook of the 19th century. There was the White House cookbook. Mm -hmm. All of these are very similar. They, there seems to be a trajectory of these kinds of compendia. Um, the Joy had a great run for a very long time. I think it's possibly been surpassed now by Bittman's How to Cook Everything, yeah, Mark Bittman, be. because it, it's just a different, and I think with each of these, it was a, a change in our collective taste. Uh, and that cookbook now is the one that everybody, I, I look for those kinds of things. What do people give at weddings? <laughs> uh, you know, and I think Bittman's the one we give now because it's, it, it matches our taste uh, yeah. as, as it's developed. But um, yeah, so that, yeah, we probably tended to slightly more toward the scholarly cookbook. Uh, but there were trends that I saw, uh, starting with Fanny Farmer. We kind of stretched the 20th century because yeah. Fanny's 1898. 18, yeah. But you know, she revolutionizes cookbooks by listing the ingredients first and, and being a stickler about measurements when and, no, and nobody else. It's a formula that, you know, they've tried to change it from time to time. It's, it's don't change it. Right. It, it works. <laughs> right. uh, she got that right. Um, I think there was a lot of interest in, especially up through the 50s, in trying to determine what is American cookery. 
because we didn't really know. We all had traditions, uh, you know. Uh, and this was strictly American. What? Yeah, were you, this, strictly these American? were strictly American cookbooks, okay. and um, and I think that that's what Paddleford was interested in in her "What America Eats," "How America Eats." James Beard and his American cookery is trying to define what this is, but then something else happens at the same time in the fifties, and that is that. Um, um, Gourmet Magazine starts and there's uh -huh. this whole influx of men who have been to Europe during the war who are suddenly interested in French and Italian food and other food traditions and then of course Mastering the Art of French Cooking comes out in 1961 and basically just displaces all the, the haute cuisine kind of notions about French food. You don't have to go to the best French restaurants in New York to get French food. You can make it very simply and and uh, Julia Child does a wonderful example of explaining and, and demystifying those right. things. Um, what I then began to see is throughout the 70s, there was an expansion into what were then called international cuisines. Yes. Um, and Time Life series. The Time Life series <laughs> being, yeah. And, um, but then in the 80s, it started being about breaking that down into even smaller gradations. So Regional, you, regional, regional cuisine. cuisine. Yeah, yeah the, um, the Splendid Table. An incredibly right. brilliant book about the cooking of, of um, Emilia Romagna. And um, yeah, and so it's interesting because then we ended up at the end with Thomas Keller, who's basically taking American comfort food, running it through the strictness of the, the French culinary tradition of chefs and sous chefs and making mac and cheese that's got truffles and lobster in it. But it's mac and cheese. And so it was an interesting arc to see and where... it made the cut? It made the cut. It was the last cookbook. <laughs> it also represents... Well, because it's funny. Clark said uh, that, you know, um, we in, in that period in the 90s, we wanted uh, comfort food in restaurants and we wanted to make the most elaborate foods at home and I added to that yeah and we all with men coming into the kitchen we got stainless steel <laughs> so there's something changed that you wanted to try to make these really elaborate dishes which you can't make at home because you don't have that many sous chefs right. but um, it, it also represented the lifestyle change in cookbooks uh, which had happened earlier probably with Lee Bailey's work Right. And uh, but you know, the, these cookbooks now that you can't really cook from because they're too big and they're filled with pictures and they're lifestyle books. They're incredibly beautiful and you can read them, um, but you need something more practical. You may find an entertaining hors d'oeuvre that you would make, right? But, yeah, know, right? yeah, and, and that's it. When you you know, if you want to entertain, oh, look at how splendid this looks. Right. I'll try to do that. And the book is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it really yeah. is. Yeah. So, but that was an interesting arc for me, from Fanny Farmer to Thomas Keller. Yep, that is that is quite. Quite a, a a spectrum, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's there was a, a website some, and I'm and I'm going to do a dishonor, not knowing their name and what it was. But they asked a lot of people, um, myself included, people in the in the food world, what are your um, ten favorite cookbooks, one to ten or whatever, and most important to you and favorite, you know, and or what you consider to be the most important cookbooks. And you'd think, oh, 10 cookbooks, I can, you know, easily. Boy, that was really hard to narrow it down to 10, sort of like asking what your, you know, which was your favorite child. I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, it's difficult. So um, I can't imagine choosing 101 classic, you know, that, and feel that you've left out something really important after it goes to press, right? Yeah, well, we did. I mean, there's no barbecue book. 
uh, yeah, among them. And yet barbecue is such an important part of American cookery traditions of the different kinds of barbecue, etc. But we couldn't agree on one that we I, thought was exemplary. I, I totally agree that it's not there. I'm yeah. with you. Why, why it should it should be this mention of it should be there, but you can't. What are you going to choose? Right. Yeah. We, we really tried. And the other thing that we didn't come up with, which I was surprised about, was a really good book about f- uh, fish and seafood. Hmm. And there are a lot of good good ones, but yeah. there wasn't one that we all could agree upon that was a game changer uh, in the way that some of the other things, like the book about rice, the the, the beautiful book about rice, which you know, basically showed the rices from all these different cultures, and that had to be there. It was it was important, and, and also it was interesting. I mean, they were anthropologists originally, originally and mm-hmm. then they did this book on rice. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I was I was hoping that there would be. One that come to that came to the top, but the committee didn't really find one. Interesting, and but so, interesting that so many um, titles overlapped. That people did select many of the same titles. It was actually very easy um, when we did it because so many people agreed with the things that we had put out there. It was very helpful for me because I asked them why, mm-hmm. and so they gave me information that ended up being in the, descri- the descriptions of each of the books about why they were historically important. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what we were looking for, was why is it historically important? Well, and that's the interesting part about the book, is there are essays included in the book as well. Not just a, It's not just a list of 101 cookbooks, but there are essays by some of the committee members and, yeah. and people who wrote those cookbooks as, as well. Yeah, we wanted to get as many voices involved as possible, um, so that it wasn't just the committee, although the committee was pretty broad and... One of the great cross-sections of people who know about the history of cookbooks. Um, but yeah, so that was a way of getting other voices in and uh, talking about things that, uh, like Marin uh, Nestle did something about the early did, uh, the early nutritionists, which most people don't know about those at all. They didn't make it into the list, but it's important to understand that 1917 is when some of the earliest writing about um, nutrition and vitamins, et cetera, well, enters they hadn't, into... They hadn't even discovered them and separated them until yeah. a few years before that. Right. So, yeah. And so it's very, very, you know, uh, groundbreaking work and right. tiny little pamphlets that, that were used. And there's another thing Andy Smith did. Um, Andy's collection is with us, too, of American food uh, materials. And he wrote about the cookbooklets and yeah. the fact that, you know, these product booklets uh, ended up with people using them. And we... Yeah, it's amazing. We were... Um, I was talking earlier about um, culinary ephemera, and you have, I mean, you've got a lot of that in your collection as well, right? Um, Going back to that collection and putting it together and the ephemera being a big part of it, because yes, pamphlets, pamphlet cookery is, it's huge. It's really huge. And that that really defines probably American cooking better than any one single cookbook, I would say. It it probably does, and there's not been a lot of research done. I mean, William Weaver, of course, did the massive book that's really, you know, sort of the book about culinary ephemera. But yeah, there's so much more research that needs to be done there. And we know one thing I'm also interested in is um, community cookbooks. Yes. And we have thousands of them. Uh, Dahlia Carmel especially loved them and, and collected them. And John, Jan Longone, another yeah, course, <laughs> person at the at University of Michigan Library, she has a huge collection and does um, a nice presentation on on community cookbooks absolutely um but but keeping this these pamphlets and this ephemera in the library is not well it's a very expensive task and it's not an easy you know one thinks well i just have all this stuff i'll give it to the library um and your acquisition let's say of the most recent the plotinus um of right health and pleasure Mm -hmm. 
what do you have? What I mean, do you have a budget to buy these things? Do you hope these things get donated? I mean, how does this work in in the university setting? Sure, um, most of the collections have been donated, but what I can do sometimes because food it crosses over every discipline mm-hmm. is I can apply funds from another discipline and buy something that's related to food. For instance, the the Plotinus. Um, it's Venetian printing. Um, it's also a text from the Renaissance. Uh, he was actually a librarian at, for the Vatican. And uh, so that allowed me to use funds for purchasing uh, medieval and Renaissance books uh, to acquire a book that's about food. Hmm. Because the Plotinus was a little pricey, uh, I, I for, would imagine for how you know food books are go. But the, the market's not horrible yet in in terms of acquiring for, uh, food materials. There's still pe- people can build really great collections without spending millions of dollars. And a lot uh, of people don't know what they have. That's true. Right. The well, pamphlets are really a great resource. They're really uh, they're expensive to describe. Because any gift that comes in, it costs at least sixty-seven fifty to process. That's what I was going to ask you. To process, I remember you once told um, a group of, of culinary people what it costs to catalog right. these items. $67.50. Per pamphlet. Per pamphlet. So what we end up doing is not cataloging them individually but using archival strategies to process them. Which and, are? Well, so in the case of Cecily's collection, she had a large pamphlet collection. She had it organized by subject. And so if you want blenders, there are three or four f- folders filled with the little catalogs and, and cookbooklets from uh, blender manufacturers. Hmm. And so that you have to come in and you have to spend a little more time looking through them. Um, you're not going to just find it in the card catalog. But that's how we've organized that kind of material. It's less... Uh, it's less timely and cost uh, and, and expensive for the library. It just means the researcher has to spend a little more time doing the work. It's a it's a balancing act, but and uh, a way to provide some access to them. Uh, what is the digital access to this collection? Is there a digital access to this collection? Not really at this point. Um, what we have done is we have acquired. Um, large digital projects that have been put together by uh, vendors related to food studies, and there are more and more of these that people are. So software that you can they're, buy they're, and plug in, or what? Yeah, it is. It's we try not to get proprietary software, but some of these are proprietary software. There are also some companies that want to come in and digitize portions of our collection, and then they're working out a model by which. Um, they can charge for a certain amount of time until they've recouped the money that they spent in doing the, the digitization of food studies materials, and then it will become available for open source. And so we're in the baby steps of talking with them, especially about pamphlet materials. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is also something that the gender studies um, vendors are interested in, too, because of the overlap with gender studies in food. Mm-hmm. And so so that's sort of, that's been my approach right now, rather than us take on a huge project to digitize the material we have. Um, also, I'm, I'm a great proponent of digitizing media uh, because I'm really worried that especially early video that we have is going to disappear. Paper's going to be around for 50 years, but we know that videotapes from the early 80s aren't going to be around in another 10 years. Or are we going to have, we talked about that on another show too, but we're not going to have the, the machinery, the technology to <clears throat> 
to access to them, transfer to it. Them, yeah. And the tapes themselves are having sticky syndrome. Mm. Uh, and so this is something that uh, Fails has over 100,000 media elements in the collection. We're very, very heavy oh. in media. And so I've put all of our efforts into digitizing um, moving image and audio recordings. And there is, um, even in the culinary collection as well, there's a, a component of oral histories. Absolutely. Well, right? yeah. And we need to do even more oral history work because there are people who, you know, we're going to start losing. Yeah. And the ideal time to do an oral history is when someone is 70 because they've had a lot of experience, <laughs> but they, don't, they haven't started to forget. Right. Uh, and so we have had some oral history projects that we've been doing. Uh, the Voices of the Food uh, Revolution was a really wonderful uh, attempt to capture some of those people. There's interest right now in doing something about food historians and capturing the early food historians' mm -hmm. memories. Um, so we're, we're, we're it, as funding allows, we're trying to, to add that aspect of archival work yeah. to the collection. Um, you know, so often on this show... Um, I'll talk about a period in history or, or be interviewing somebody about something they've written in history. And, and the feedback I get from listeners is, well, how do you, aside from how do you become a culinary historian, but it's, you know, how do you go about researching something in culinary history? And my first thing would be, would you know, tell them, ask your librarian. Yeah. <laughs> but how, uh -huh. you know, so, you know, someone looking, someone looking for, um, let's say they have a project, I don't know, let's say, uh, talk about the history and background of, of potluck dinners. Mm -hmm. How would you suggest to somebody to, to begin their research? Well, first thing I would say, this is what we call a reference interview. In librarian terms, okay. oh, the person right. comes in, and I do a lot of this um, boutique reference. It's almost like you're a personal buyer for somebody. So they come in and they say, I wanted to work on potluck dinners. And say, let's just say this is a graduate student. Um, and I say, okay, what aspect of potluck dinners are you interested in? Are you interested in what's served? Are you interested in the gender politics of these? Are you interested in the social aspect of it? So you've got to say, are they going down sociologically? Are they actually interested in the recipes themselves? Uh, sort of to help them narrow the scope. Um, and then what time period? Uh, because everything changes depending on time periods. It's going to be very different in the 50s than from the early 70s. Okay. Uh, we do have a book called Cooking for Orgies and Other Large Parties. Which is 1971, right? You know, uh, sounds like that would right, be right, right? You know, as opposed to I'm going to probably send them to Betty Crocker if they're looking for something from the 50s. Uh, so, uh, and then I would, you know, have them do what any good researcher does is is bibliographic searching. You have to figure out what your bibliography is. Um, who's done what in the past? What have they cited? Citation uh, indexing. And um, then they start to develop uh, a, a much better sense of what it is they're really trying to look for. Hmm. Uh, and then they just have to do a lot of primary research. It's a lot of research. It's a lot. And because it's a new field, not much. There, there is a material that's wonderful that's never been looked at before because this was a field not unlike the novel which is what Mr. Fales collected that was not thought to be important. Mr. Fales offered 50,000 volumes to Harvard in 1956 and they wouldn't take them because it was the novel. 
because the novel wasn't <laughs> what it would become. And of not course, not an academic work, <laughs> right? And that's what, of course, Marion had found even at NYU is people like, oh, well, this is it's quotidian, it's women's work, all of these things that are not true about yeah. culinary history and food studies. But that prejudice was built in there. I mean, even the Library of Congress structure for the uh, classification of the books is really crappy, hmm. and it's in technology. It's right after photography is where where cookbooks are put. And so it's a total mindset about what this is that's driven by home economics as opposed to what we know it really is. It's like about history and culture and you know just about anything it's a huge and very very rich topic. So yeah, it's, so that's some of the thinking that goes into whenever I'm working with somebody on a question um, yeah there was somebody who was looking into the history of ice cream in Japan it was a fun question. Yeah. And um, my favorite question, when I first started talking about the Food Studies Collection, was trying to get deans and administrators to understand why we needed to do this. I pointed out that Mr. Fail's collection you know, came to us because we accepted it and you know, other places didn't, uh, and that basically food, food studies was the same thing. But um, there was a student who was looking uh, at death row inmates' requests for their final meals. Hmm. And there was one particular dean who I was mentioning this to, and he said, well, what's that about? And I said, well, what do you think is the most requested meal by death row inmates? And he said, steak, because everybody says steak. And I said, no, it's McDonald's. Hmm. And wow. that, and he went, yeah, I said, that's exactly. It's yeah. about race and about uh, socioeconomic status. It's about what is considered comfort food or is it going out? I mean, there are all these kinds of issues that come up around this research that a master student did. It's really, really, really tells you so much about, I mean, you about know, who we food, are. Food is the universal language. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I know that so many university um, collections are, have limited accessibility and you have to have a key sign in. You have to be, you know, what about Fails Library? Who can access the collections? Sure. So Mr. Fails, when he gave the fiction collection, he wanted to make sure that it was accessible to writers and to other people. So one of the stipulations was that it could, even though there are a lot of very valuable things, it had to be accessible uh, to, you know, to your average writer who wants to come in. And so I've taken that to heart. And the collection, the Food Studies collection, is available for researchers. You have to be able to articulate a, a research project. I mean, we're not a browsing collection. Mm -hmm. And that, I explain that by saying that, you know, you can't come in and read all of our Henty novels just because you like Henty. Um, that's not what we're there for. But we do have a lot of people come in to use the Food Studies collection um, who are food writers or um, critics from time to time, chefs. Uh, as a, a wide range of people uh, who do use the collection. But they it, just can't walk in. They, they should right. make an appointment. They have to or, make, an yeah, appointment. make an appointment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, our address is fails.library at nyu.edu. And then we schedule people to come in. And that, that way we can also help them if they, have, if they don't have a lot of experience working in a research library on how to do the research. Yeah. Excellent. Well, hopefully the collections can move in the culinary field, can move a little higher up the food chain, if you will, of library uh, collections they, <laughs> with they your work. They clearly have. Um, it, 
more and more institutions are requiring uh, large collections of culinary materials. Um, we held a symposium maybe five years ago at NYU about the current state of, of, of culinary collections and food studies collections. And we invited people from around the country who are invested in this. So Cornell, Michigan, um, Indiana, uh, and so that we were sort of the big players at that point. Um, but I'm hearing from people all the time wanting to build collections and small schools, colleges where there are food studies. We've been donating duplicate copies of books uh, that we get to places uh, if they'll just, you know, pay for the shipping. Uh, And so we've been giving um, materials. And do your own cataloging. (laughs) Exactly. Right. You know, um, it, because we do see a lot of duplication, uh, things that are, that are coming to us because we have so many, but I think that's a wonderful way of just, you know, building these collections across the country. And I, I have really seen a change in the past five years. Wow. Well, this is to me, of course, such, you know, to, to my heart material. It's, it's, such excellent conversation, and I, I encourage you to keep at it and keep doing the work. I mean, you have done so much to, you know, to build the awareness of culinary collections, and um, I just wish we weren't out of time because I had a million more <laughs> questions for you, but we are. And Marvin Taylor, director of Fales Library at NYU and Special Collections. Thank you so much, Marvin. Thank you, Linda. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening again. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.